We all want to create amazing products, but how? This show helps you to put pieces of the product puzzle together, unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX research and product management practitioners. I'm your host, managing founder of The Space In Between, Brendan Jarvis, and you're tuned in to the very first episode of Brave UX. I hope you find today's conversation useful in your quest to create great products. My guest today is Steve Bromley. Steve is a Brighton-based UX researcher, consultant, author, and educator who helps organizations to start user research teams and run effective research. Steve holds a Master's of Human-Centered Computing from the University of Sussex, where he has since returned as a guest lecturer. He's also guest lectured at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, presented at numerous conferences, including Games You Are, The Research Thing, UX Brighton, CHI Play. And he has also had his work featured at GDC and the Develop Conference. For most of the past decade, Steve invested his time working at PlayStation, where he was the lead user researcher on numerous AAA titles, including Horizon Zero Dawn, No Man's Sky, and Little Big Planet 3. While at PlayStation, Steve founded the IGDA Games User Research Mentoring Program, which has connected over 150 students with more than 50 industry professionals from an impressive array of top gaming companies such as Sony, EA, Valve, Ubisoft, and Microsoft. After leaving PlayStation, Steve went on to set up user research teams for the UK Parliament and most recently for the UK's largest commercial publisher, Reach PLC. Steve is also the author of the book, Building User Research Teams, How to Create UX Research Teams that Deliver Impactful Insights, which is available on Amazon and Book Depository and as an ebook for Kindle. You can find Steve at stevebromley.com, that's B-R-O-M-B-R-O-M-L-E-Y, and on Twitter at Steve underscore Bromley. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Brendan, and uh, thank you for a lovely introduction. Oh, you're most welcome. Now, Steve, I'm really curious, did you always want to be a user researcher? Because it doesn't strike me as something that's top of the list for most kids. Yes, um, the answer is no, I didn't know it existed for a long time. I, I think I was lucky and stumbled upon it. So I originally did my undergraduate degree in history, uh, which is obviously not particularly related to user research or software design or games design. Um, I quickly found after graduating that actually it's very hard to get a job doing something directly related to history. It's one of those jobs where they, uh, one of those degrees where they chuck you out into the real world and say, cool, you can do anything, off you go. Um, <laughs> and I ended up on a graduate scheme for uh, American Express, the, the credit card company for their tech graduate scheme. As part of that, they asked you to pick a master's to uh, fund. And there was a choice of one that was very codey and very developery, and then human-centered computing, which I hadn't heard of and wasn't familiar with. And I thought, although I'd done a little bit of web design and things like that before, perhaps being a, a developer wasn't the right route for me. And so I picked the other one mainly because it wasn't going to be quite so heavy on the development. Uh, and then I was just very lucky at the University of Sussex, there was a, a lecturer at the time, uh, Dr. Graham McAllister, who was also spinning up his own startup at the same time called Vertical Slice. Uh, they were, the as far as I know, the first um, company that does playtesting for video games as an agency. And I, yeah, that was revelation to me. I didn't know that, oh, there's, you can get a job uh, doing usability research, which I didn't at the time know what it was. Uh, on video games that's incredibly exciting and uh, yeah and I think that was the wake-up call for me so I was very lucky that I did my dissertation with uh, Graham McAllister he hooked me up with a local games company inside Brighton and Relentless they I don't know if you recall and the place two days there was the game called Buzz mm -hmm. which was the quiz game and everyone had a buzz and you have to buzz in with your with your answers uh, they were making that game and they were thinking about future games and I was lucky enough to do a project with them as part of my master's. And then after that, I, yes, uh, I was like, okay, the world is my oyster. This is uh, a field which is super exciting. You get to work on games that people love. You get to uh, make a difference about games by doing usability and user research. 
and I think that's set my path ever since. Mm. T- tell me, you said you get to make a difference by doing the, the usability mm. research in gaming. Um, what, what sort of difference is that? What have you seen? Yes, yeah, so a, a thing that surprised me all ever since I've been a, a user researcher, not just for games, but since, is even when the developers think, oh, I've made this thing and it's fine, I can't anticipate there being any issues, you always do find usability issues. You find there are bits where players haven't understood where they're meant to go in the game, they haven't understood the objective, they don't understand how to use the features in it. Just the same as on websites where you see people don't understand which button to click or they're not understanding what information this field is asking for. And you see, as when you are running uh, user research, you see the impact that has on players. They are confused, they get bored, particularly when we did a lot of tests with kids when I was at PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Um, kids do have no um, reservations telling you, oh, I'm bored, don't want to do this anymore, can I go home? Which is sad once they've been brought in to, to play computer games that they want to give up and go home. Um, and by being able to find these issues throughout development, you can fix them, obviously, before real players in the real world see them and have a real impact on that player experience, making sure that players do understand what they're meant to do, that they are uh, interpreting the fun in the way that designers designed, mm. and that there are no barriers to creating the right user experience that the developers want, either from their game or from their software. You, you mentioned that ch- children are fairly um, open and honest and, and somewhat potentially brutal in the feedback that they provide. Uh, what sort of um, pre-warning did you have to give um, any of the observers that may have been involved in the creation of, of the games before they heard that? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so perhaps we didn't warn the developers beforehand about how brutal kids would be. And a problem is a lot of developers, well, lots of people have kids of their own, but if you are a developer, you might not encounter real kids that often really playing games in a real context and so it can be quite surprising i've uh, i think i've kept this somewhere i uh, we were playing a platform game with some kids and halfway through the session a kid wrote a, a tiny note on a piece of paper and then put their hand up very shyly and handed it over to me and i was like okay what is it what, what is it we're going to see and i went up and the note said can I play Mario, please? Which is very cute. But again, not the sort of, uh, not what a developer would want to hear, but probably what a developer needs to hear. They would much rather know before they finish the game, oh, we need to change something because this isn't engaging kids, rather than finding that out in the reviews or after the game launches. Uh, but yes, they, they can be quite brutal. Yeah, not, not the place for uh, the frag- fragile ego. Exactly. Uh, perhaps any user research session, you, you have our risk of having your ego damaged if you feel particularly attached to the thing you've made. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to improve our observers' uh, guidelines and briefing uh, <laughs> to make sure that those are properly uh, expectations are properly managed. Um, Steve, you, obviously you've invested a, a lot of um, energy into education and um, and investment of professional your professional career in user research. Um, and it seems to me, looking through your bio and the, the amount of work that you've done, speaking at conferences, obviously your masters um, and all the other associated things you've done, such as the book, um, you seem to you have a very um, strong passion for knowledge and for sharing that knowledge. Is that something that's always been the case for you you know where does that come from yeah I think that's something that struck me about the game user research community when I joined myself as a junior researcher who knew nothing about any of this perhaps related to how secret games are about the actual game being made and the uh, the contents of the thing we're working on the community is in contrast to that very open about okay here's the methods we use and here's some best practice and here's Uh, some ways that you can get better insight from your sessions, which I think is a great ethos to have. Obviously, user research is uh, still somewhat in its early days where a lot of teams, both games teams and also software development teams, don't yet consider it a core part of their development process. And some that do do things like usability testing aren't taking advantage of you can do research early in development and that has some benefits as well. And so a lot of places have reasonably low research maturity 
And I think the impact of that is that the community recognises that we should be stronger as a whole and we should share our approaches to try and raise the bar of research across the whole industry. Um, there's a lot of good work being done in the game user research community by uh, volunteers to create uh, conferences, create community events, create training things. And I think I've just wanted to be part of that. I've seen the benefit of let's all work together to help raise the bar of where user research uh, adoption is in the world. And it's been nice to have the opportunity to do that through some of these different mediums like presenting at universities. I also, for a little bit, used to present at schools to try and, uh, for younger children, give them the idea that this is a career that you could do. So it's not such a surprise that, that it was for me. And things like writing the book or uh, other initiatives. Mm-hmm. And what was it in particular that inspired you to set up the um, Games User Research Mentoring Programme? Because that seems mm-hmm. to me, I mean, that just just reading about that and having a look through that website, I mean, it seems to have had quite an impact in the lives of um, of, of quite a few um, young people. Um, to some quite serious studios. Yes, again, we've been very lucky that people from these AAA studios, from games that everyone's heard of, have volunteered their time to do this. I think it was that I recognised there are a few gaps in in that journey from how do you have no job or just leaving school to how do you start working in a company like Microsoft or Valve or EA. Um, Some of the problems are, there's just not enough knowledge that what games user research is or what good user research practice is. Mm. And a lot of the concepts that user research covers are similar, it sounds similar to things like market research, which has been around for a lot longer, as you know. And because of that, it can be a bit unclear for someone joining the industry, okay, what actually does a user researcher do? And also, uh, where can I, uh, what can I do to develop my own skills to be the right person to get these kind of user research jobs? One of the challenges that I think people leaving university have is getting that first job or getting a portfolio of projects together so they can show, oh, I can do usability testing, or I can run these studies, and I would be a suitable hire for some of these jobs. And that's particularly difficult for things like user research because you need some users to do it. Usually you have to pay users so they turn up. Mm-hmm. And someone who's just left university has no funds or ability to pay five people to turn up for a usability session so that they can have a practice piece of their portfolio. And so a lot of the work that our mentors do have been running through projects, setting tasks uh, related to each bit of the research process for our uh, mentees, Mm -hmm. and then giving them feedback on the work they're doing and just giving them the opportunity to create some portfolio pieces that they can then use for job interviews, which I think has been very valuable. Lots of our mentees have gone on to work in the games industry Lots of others haven't and have gone to work in user research more generally, but there is a degree of crossover between those skills. So again, that seems like a, a win as well. Mm, you said that was valuable. And I think I think it's probably invaluable, particularly in the current climate, you know, with the world largely in recession or if not um, heading into it. And younger people are going to find it more and more difficult to, to enter into uh, the industry. So, I mean, look, it's a really fantastic initiative that you've put together there and I'm sure it's made a big difference in in the lives of a lot of young people and will continue to do so. Yeah, hopefully so. Mm. So look, um, gaming, uh, you worked at PlayStation for, I believe, five years. Um, It's, I mean, that sounds like a a dream job if you're a gamer, which I know that you are because we were chatting before the show. Uh, Is it even a place you can work if you're not a gamer? Yeah, I think there are some challenges for people who are not, familiar with games to work in a game setting like PlayStation. Uh, I guess the biggest one is you have to know some of the references that your participants are going to talk about. If they, if you're playing a game and the participant is, you're interviewing a participant and they say, oh, the inventory system in this game is like Halo's inventory system. I think you as a researcher need to know enough about the field to be able to um, recognize what they're saying and what that means. And, then communicate that to a games developer. And I guess that's another one of the challenges that to have a degree of credibility in front of a game development team, you have to know enough about what you're talking about to be able to have a 
a conversation about games or games development. Luckily, a lot of people like games very much and lots of people are very enthusiastic about it. So I think there are people out there who uh, care enough about games to want to do it. Uh, and PlayStation is a very exciting place to work. They have lots of parties, you get free games, you get um, to go to launch events and things that are, are really exciting things. But perhaps you do have to be a gamer to enjoy that uh, as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. The credibility is a code word for a uh, misspent youth, depending on <laughs> how you, depending on how you look at it. Uh, you mentioned remember, that, that. You go on. No, please continue. I remember there's. I don't know if you're familiar with Gary Larson, the Far Side comics, and there's one where there's a kid playing on uh, Mario Gaskets from the eighties, and his parents are imagining. Uh, the jobs he's going to get, like get paid three hundred pounds to play games a day, and all these things. And the joke is meant to be that obviously it's unrealistic for play uh, for their parents to think, oh, he can get paid for playing video games. But actually, it, it can happen for things like working at PlayStation or being a game dude researcher. That kind of background of spending all your youth playing video games is super valuable. Or even um, esports, which I mean, you know, some of the prize pools are, are, are rivaling some of the, you know, the the the, the real world um, sports. Yeah, great point. Yes, that as well. So, look, I mean, PlayStation sounds like an amazing place to work. Was it a hard place to leave? Yes, definitely so. Especially because everyone was so friendly, and I worked with a great team of there of people who knew what they were doing, were really generous with their time and expertise, and also the opportunity to work on some of these games, as well as those big uh, AAA games that you mentioned earlier. Um, PlayStation all work either owns or finances a lot of small studios where you'd work with small teams who are perhaps only five people working on a game. And those were particularly fun to work on because they're such a small team and can have such, make such a big difference to run usability studies and see what real players' impact is. And that was very difficult to leave, um, particularly because of the parties I mentioned earlier and the free games, definitely free games. Um, how much was, the, I was just going to say, how much uh, did SingStar feature at the uh, parties? Because you mentioned that was one of your, your favourite games when we were chatting before. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, SingStar was definitely a lot of fun, especially to test because you were just getting groups of friends in to come and sing Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> in front of you, uh, which never gets old. Um, I've actually but, got the lyrics of that here, Steve, if you wanted to do yeah, a bit of karaoke. Go. <laughs> I've got Casio keyboard somewhere. Let's give it a go. Excellent. Um, yes, but yeah, especially the party games like SingStar, and we also worked on some uh, other party games, which are just great for casual getting on the TV and, and playing together. I think those were particularly fun with the people we work at PlayStation, a good thing for lunch breaks or after work. Nice to have a group of people who have the same interests as you and, yeah, you can enjoy these things together. Um, you asked about leaving PlayStation. Mm. So one of the, the things that I felt I needed to do for my own personal development is uh, PlayStation was great and very mature at its usability testing where they would evaluate games uh, as they're being made and test the prototypes and get some feedback about okay, players didn't understand what they're meant to do or where they're meant to go. But perhaps because games are an art form, uh, we didn't do so many studies earlier in the development process. So thinking outside of games before you design something like, uh, if you were designing Uber, before you start designing that, you'd want to understand, okay, how do people get taxis currently? And what are the problems with getting taxis currently? And where's the opportunity for a new product to come or a new feature to come to, to make that better? And I didn't have much chance to run those kind of studies at PlayStation, which is one of the things that made me look outside the games industry for my, for my next roles, just to fill out that gap of experience and make sure that I uh, was able to do each part of a user research process, not just test things that have been made. Mm, yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting topic there. So it sounded like at PlayStation, it was mainly focused on the evaluative track of user research so we have a thing we've made this thing it's relatively um uh finished in its form let's see how it performs in the hands of the users versus what it sounded like you were exploring uh there um when you left which was this explorative generative um even 
uh, pre-problem definition um, mm -hmm. type of research. So how how did you navigate that transition? You know how how um, how were you able to leverage the experience you had with PlayStation into um, your move into the more mainstream user research? Yeah, there were some bits of my experience at PlayStation that had touched on doing earlier, more generative work. One of the last projects that I worked on before leaving was they were launching the PlayStation VR headset, the new the virtual reality uh, system. And virtual reality was a lot more explorative in the studies we were running because at that point, the Oculus wasn't out. There were no other VR headsets, uh, at least for, open for consumers to buy at that time. Um, a lot of the questions that games teams would have or the people working on, on the headset would have were very fundamental. Uh, how do people interact with VR? What's a safe space for people to use VR in? What are the challenges that people have uh, using in VR? All of these earlier questions that you'd want to answer before you start to design some software or a website. And I think that, that project in particular started to expose me to, okay, what are some approaches that are very helpful early in development, things where you can be more contextual, understanding people in their real space and people's real life. Mm. And that was some of the experience that I took forward with me into, into new roles to uh, demonstrate that I could do these kind of studies as well as testing things as well. It sounds like you spend a lot of time in, in people's lounges. Yes, there's a lot of traipsing all over London uh, and seeing different people's lounges and uh, setting up VR headsets in there so that we could see if it would work. I don't know if you remember the Microsoft Connect, their um, augmented reality system, yeah, yeah. where it had lots of games where you wave your hands around. Uh, I think one of the things that had been noticed was, although that was very successful in America, where they have very big lounges, um, in other countries such as Japan and, and here in the UK, where the average living room is reasonably small, uh, some of the interactions required and some of the games wouldn't work in, in these setups. You'd have to move your sofas out of the way and push the TV back just to be able to have enough play space to make the connect work. And I think that's one of the things we're thinking about is how do we make sure it is compatible with this international audience and not just work in America. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I can empathise with that. Having bought a, a Vive actually, and then tried to make that work in one of, one of one of our flats, and quickly found out that the room was about thirty centimetres too small to actually work for room scale VR. So it was quickly listed on, uh, you know, listed for sale after that. Yes, perhaps your usability lab could be adapted to just take up the whole space with a VR setup. It, it, it can be. That was actually one of the very important measurements uh, should that develop as a local opportunity uh, for the gaming industry here. So, yes, definitely. Um, so, uh, very serious question, just to, just to fi finish off here on um, games user research. Um, uh, God of War or Uncharted? Oh, definitely God of War. I was never that into the earlier... I played the earlier God of Wars and you just walked forward and you, you hit square as much as you can and beat everyone. Um, whereas the story and the narrative uh, driving the new God of War, I thought was fantastic. I really liked it. Although Uncharted is obviously also a lovely game, I think The Last of Us is much more thematically closer to the type of stuff I like from, from Naughty Dog. And so God of War was my one of last generation and I'm really looking forward to seeing the next one in the next generation. Most definitely. Hey, so Steve, you, you left PlayStation and um, you went to the UK Parliament and mm. I can't think of actually on the face of it two, two different kind of environments to enter a lot of assumption in there. Um, you know, what were the major differences and, and, and how did you adjust to such a different environment? Yeah, great question. So um, the context at Parliament when I joined is that they didn't have an in-house user research team at the time and didn't uh, have any history of running user research. As you can imagine, it's an institution that's been around for almost a thousand years and they're very set in their ways and their current ways weren't particularly around let's look at user-centered design and let's learn from users as part of our development process. Um, Interesting so, uh, perspective for a democracy. Not, yes, not very true. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a uh yeah it was obviously a very different context 
And I think the types of studies, as we've touched upon, perhaps, were significantly different going from uh, building software, which are entertainment medium and uh, artistic, and then moving to building, trying to build functional websites that allow citizens to do democracy-related tasks. I guess the first thing that felt very significantly different was just how much fun the participants were having. When someone comes to PlayStation to take, like, play an unreleased game, that's probably the best thing they're doing this, this month, probably the best thing they're doing this year from their perspective, and they're having a great time. Whereas if you are coming, on to, uh, coming into a usability session and you have to read some long reports from a committee has published as for your test, again, that's probably not the best thing you've done that day. Um, so also, I guess it, it's also a good, a good reason not to disclose too much to participants as to what they'll be doing before they get there. Exactly. You'd have to incentivize them a lot more if you told them they would be reading very long reports when you got there. Um, but from their development processes, actually, again, that was somewhat different and an education for me, which I very much enjoyed. Um, I talked about earlier about PlayStation's focus on usability testing. Because Parliament recognises that it needs to be for citizens and for everyone, uh, a lot of that foundational work to understand what are people's contexts and what are they trying to do when they contact their MP, for example, is a lot more important. And so a lot more of that discovery work needs to happen. Mm. Um, understanding people in the real world and the real problems that they have will directly inform how do you make Parliament's websites. Uh, another thing that struck me as different was the ethos. And this is something that I think is, is really important and a lesson I'll try to take forward from Parliament. How we worked in PlayStation where we were essentially an internal agency where we would take a brief and would run a study and would do some analysis and then present it back to the team at the end. And that's great and works really well for those kind of uh, usability studies where you find problems. The ethos in Parliament instead was a lot more about cross-functional teams and multidisciplinary work. So instead of being a research team, you would embed your user researcher inside a product team and they would work very closely with their designer, product manager, a content designer. And instead of going away and running a study and bringing it back, a lot of the effort that a user researcher would do would be thinking about, okay, how can we expose every part of the research process to the team we're working with and make sure that they understand it as well. Mm. The obvious one that I think is very common is bringing in teams to observe studies. At least they can see the users firsthand and see the experience and they'll trust, oh, I've learned these, that these problems exist and I know that these are real users, so I believe it. Uh, but there are some ways you can go beyond that, such as doing analysis together as a team where everyone's analysing the findings and affinity mapping together, or thinking about how to share those findings as a team as well. So rather than a report, finding something like a workshop where you can discuss the findings together and come to a conclusion based on that. I think that kind of collaborative research approach has a lot of advantages it reduces that communications gap between the researcher who knows everything that you need to know about users and the designer who has to make design decisions. It brings that, those people closer together and reduces that gap. But I also see it's a lot harder for a research team and a researcher because their role becomes a lot more about facilitation than running research studies. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that's uh, the approach that we take here at the space in between. But I was I was going to say um, it's it sounds like that could go horribly wrong. Have you got any stories to share uh, the dangers of facilitation or, or bringing people into the research process maybe too soon? Yeah, perhaps not a specific incident, but I think that was one of the mistakes that I personally made at Parliament was. I looked at other organisations who were working in this model and it's been very successful. A very prominent example here in the UK is Government Digital Service, GDS, who do a lot of work uh, and have done a lot to advance the field of user research. And I looked at that and said, okay, that looks great. They're having a great time with it. Let's dive straight in with that. And I think the challenge was I was trying to go straight in at a very high research maturity level for an organisation that didn't have any history of doing user research. And so a lot of the, the conflicts you might have at that, uh, that generates a lot of conflicts. Um, obviously that collaborative research practice requires 
the other people who are not researchers, such as the designers and product managers, to understand enough about research to be able to, uh, to play an active role in it and make sensible decisions and do things like uh, analysis, which can be very difficult if it's your first exposure to research. Mm. Also, it takes a lot of people's time. If you want people to come and watch research sessions and analyze findings together and come up with a report together, if you're a developer, that's time you're not writing code and feels quite like you're being taken away from your job. And because of that, there can be challenges getting people to take part or see the value of it. And I attribute that to trying to jump into a high maturity model straight away. The approach I've tried to take since is, okay, let's build up to that model. Let's start an agency style. Let's gradually open up opportunities to get teams who are particularly interested more involved. And eventually we'll end up in that same place, but the, the ramping up will be uh, easier for everyone involved. It's, it sounds like a bit of a, a almost a cultural learning or, or journey that you have to take people on. Yeah, I can see that. And I see that a lot of the work that researchers have to do, especially as they get more senior, is that kind of advocacy and evangelism to, to explain this is what user research is, here's the benefits of doing it, this is why it's worth your time. Try and dispel some of those myths that people might have had around user research. What are um, some of those myths, Steve? Yes, yeah, so uh, there, there's some that you hear again and again, and I'm sure you've heard in your own experience as well. I guess one of the first ones is people's concern that research uh, costs money. Uh, and they think, oh, this study is too expensive. And instead of paying the money to run this research study, I'm just going to dive in and we'll launch it and we'll see how it does earlier. Yeah. And, and if, I, if I said that to you, so imagine I'm your stake, uh, your senior stakeholder. I'm a, pro I'm a product manager, for example. And I say to you, Steve, we can't do this. It's going to take too much time and it's too expensive. What, what are you going to say to me? Yeah, great. Uh, great point. And I hear your feedback. Um, the, so it is true that research is expensive. There are some costs that I highly recommend you don't cut back on. The most prominent one is recruiting participants. If you're not spending money to get the right type of people in, you're not learning relevant things. And if you're not incentivizing them to turn up and paying them to actually bother to turn up to the session, again, you're going to waste everyone's time because they won't turn up and then everyone just sat around doing nothing. And it's true that has a cost, and sometimes that can be a reasonably high upfront cost. As user researchers, we believe that that cost is ultimately saved back during development time and later on in the process. By running these uh, studies earlier on, you identify oh, that fe uh, what features do we need to make, or that feature doesn't work for our users and we need to make some changes, or that button's in the wrong place and we need to move it so that people understand what they're meant to do and address some of these issues where people might not understand what the software is or how it works. And by finding out those issues earlier in the development process, you're not wasting that development time on something that's ultimately not going to work. And you can fix that much earlier than you would fix it otherwise. This has some direct financial benefits. You will obviously not spend that time that the developer would have spent working on the wrong thing and you'll get to the finished product quicker. It also means uh, we'll have an impact on some of the metrics like customer retention. If when you launched, you got 100 customers in and they all had a bad experience and they bounced out, that costs uh, financial cost, obviously. Mm -hmm. And by preventing that happening, by fixing those issues before your 100 customers come in, you might save 50 of those customers and again, see a direct return on investment for the research study that you've done. And so because of that, although research is expensive, we think it's cost less overall when you look at the whole project than not running research studies. Mm. Yeah, it's something that, that, that I've heard a bit as, as well. And it, it seems um, to be a difficult one uh, to demonstrate in advance, mm -hmm. uh, unlike something where you're testing in production and you can A-B test it and, or multivariate and see exactly what the performance is with a significant volume of users coming through. Um, it almost sounds like the organization has to take a, a leap of faith, at least initially, that research will deliver the benefits um, that you're speaking of. Yes, 
And you do see this on teams that work on multiple projects. Again, returning to games, if you look at the development of Halo, I think on their earlier Halo games, they ran very few studies right at the end of development. And then as the titles went on, they were running more studies earlier. And by the last one, they were running them right from the start. There are ways that you can try and demonstrate that benefit quicker as a user researcher. One that I've been thinking about is uh, so if you do have an existing uh, product, looking at some of the metrics that are important to teams, uh, a very common one is the number of support tickets that customers raise mm -hmm. or the support calls that you get. And by running something simple like a usability study, you can hopefully see an impact on the number of support requests that teams are, are required to deal with. That can be attributed to a financial cost. You can work out how much time people are spending answering support tickets and then say, okay, this study saved us this much money. And by getting some buy-in on some of those simpler tests like usability studies over the life cycle of more projects, you can start to move earlier in that process as you get evidence that this is having an impact and convince people. Yeah, and I suppose this illustrates what seems to be a bias in a lot of organizations towards the, the, the quantitative and in your book, um, and as we're just talking about the usability studies you've been running at PlayStation and, and since you've left as well, um, that's the qualitative end of user research, isn't it? That's correct. And I agree with you entirely that because there are some nice numbers and people can see the difference between two numbers, uh, the, the truth of quantitative research is often easier to convince people of or easier to demonstrate through things like A-B testing. I think one of the challenges that user research, qualitative user research has is uh, a lot of the benefits of understanding your audience better are very hard to quantify. And also people forget that they didn't know this before. You'll watch a user do something and then have learned, oh, that's what the user's behavior is, or there's a problem that the user has. And by tomorrow, you'll forget that you didn't always know that and just think, oh, I always knew that users had difficulty ordering a taxi uh, in the rain. Uh, <laughs> without recognizing that how the study has influenced your thinking, which makes it somewhat difficult, especially with those generative studies to quantify the benefits. It's easier with usability testing because you can count the number of issues you see, you can rate the severity of the issues, and there's lots of ways that you can quantify that. But yeah, you do need a degree of buy-in and uh, research maturity from an organization before they can see the benefits of understanding your users better through a mm. study. So get stuck and find find something that you can quantify as a result of the research that you've done a small a small thing and, and use that to uh, build confidence and trust in the research process. And that sounds that sounds really sensible. Um, what is it do you think in your experience with organisations that does um, bias them to fe towards feeling more comfortable with the hard data, like the mm. quantitative side of things? I, I guess, as we talked about, the fact that they are numbers and people understand numbers, I guess numbers especially speak to people on more senior levels as you go higher up the chain. And graphs and charts are the type of things that they deal with a lot. Whereas the actual granularity that you get from a good user research study is extremely valuable, invaluable, I'd say, to designers who are actually making those implementation decisions or product managers who are actually making those feature decisions but doesn't scale up in the same way where it's very hard to communicate that up to an executive level, whereas uh, a number, everyone can look at a number on a graph and see the difference. But that same number, that quant study, also doesn't have that same impact for the teams you work with. It's much less valuable for a designer or a product manager to know that this one is 50% better than this one than it is to understand, okay, users looked at the screen and they understood this aspect of it and the reason they understood this aspect is because of their history with this that gives a lot of inspiration which is really useful on on the ground mm. so uh you're saying that it's difficult for senior management to buy empathy yes that would be it yeah 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 steve you also warned in your book about user researchers in uh, smaller qualitative studies um including metrics including mm measurements um can you tell tell us a little bit more about why that is why is that problematic yes of course so a very common thing that user researchers might be tempted to do 
is to ask uh, their, the participants to rate things. Oh, at the end of a session, they've used a website. Can you rate this website out of 10? And they'll say, oh, it's eight out of 10. And the next one will say it's three out of 10. And again, there's a temptation because as we've heard people like quant and like numbers to take those ratings and sit them in the report and say, oh, okay, the website was, was seven out of 10 overall, which sounds fine. <laughs> uh, the issue being a lot of these qualitative studies uh, aren't seeing enough users to make reliable conclusions from that quant data. So there are statistical tests that you can run and people who are better at stats than me can explain it better, but you can anticipate by seeing those, that number of users you've seen, what the range of answers a wider audience would give. And from a qualitative study, that range is very large. You would say, uh, if people were rating words out of 10, if you were only seeing five or six users, once you did that statistical, statistical test, it would only give you an indication that the average person will rate it somewhere between two and eight. Yeah. And that's a large gap that's not particularly useful. However, you need a degree of exposure and understanding of statistics to know why you shouldn't just take the average, why you shouldn't just go for, okay, on average people said seven, and so I'm going to put seven. And there's a high risk if you aren't being careful with how you're communicating this, that teams are going to look at the numbers you've counted notice the average and then compare that between different rounds. They say, oh, last round we were six, now we're seven, so we're getting better. Um, statistically, we know that's not true from these types of studies, or at least we know we can't tell that from these types of studies. Mm -hmm. And so you're giving teams misleading conclusions and they're gonna have bad information and make poor decisions because you haven't been careful with the uh, information that is safe to communicate from tests. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. would undermine the confidence people have in the in the research if you end up making decisions that 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 are that are not helpful to the organization yeah that's exactly it a thing that i think is very valuable is building trust with a research team and one of the tools i think is very helpful for building trust is using caveats and saying what you don't know so from a, a research study we're going to learn 10 reliable things and then some things which are not perhaps so reliable or gives an indication there might be something here, but we don't know exactly what it is. And being very clear to your team about, we believe that these answers are safe, and we think these are interesting, but we know they're not safe and don't do anything based on them yet, we'll just explore further. I think that builds trust that hey, the ones that they think are safe must be good because they've told us the ones that aren't safe. And I think that's a really powerful tool to caveat your findings in that way. Mm. Uh, how would you determine whether a piece of feedback back was safe or unsafe? Mm. One of the one of the obvious safe ones, or ones that we consider very safe, are usability findings. Mm. We know that when we've seen an issue, it's true that the issue exists, and we know that that issue isn't the intended experience. And at that point, it's very uh, sensible to do something to fix that problem, rather than spending time to work out how many people encounter that problem. That's potentially just wasted effort. We know the problem exists, let's do something about it. Mm. Instead, other types of finding are the ones where there's more risk and we should be more careful. Um, with numbers, like we talked about taking ratings, you can do that statistical test and you can uh, expose the confidence intervals and say, we know it's somewhere between here and here, uh, but we don't know where it is in that bracket. And so again, that can be you're confident with how much you do know and how much you don't know until you can communicate that. The riskiest ones and the ones we use the most heavy caveats around is opinions. Mm. If someone says, oh, I liked this website or I liked that it was green or I, I really like the font, we know that that opinion exists, but we don't know how many people hold that opinion and how many people hold the contrary opinion. And it's those kind of findings we're most careful to say, if you want us to explore this, we should combine it with a quant method like designing a survey uh, to explore how many people had that opinion and how many people had a different opinion before you take action. Mm. Have you got any stories from the trenches that you can share of when something like that has originated either at PlayStation or since leaving where you've then gone on to, um, to run a study like this? Does anything come to mind? Like a, a survey off the back of a usability yeah. study? Yes, so it's reasonably common in um, games user research. And one of the reasons it is reasonably common in games user research is because the opportunity is there. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a couple of aspects of this. 
it's as you're familiar with from games, review scores are very important. And so teams very much like the idea of uh, having a score. And as we've talked about, to get reliable scores and to do things like surveys reliably, you need a lot of people. With games, there is an opportunity to get a lot of people because games are so exceptionally long. Um, God of War, we talked about earlier, is probably 20 hours long. Mm. If you wanted to even do a usability study on, on that, that's 20 hours of gameplay, which is, what's that? That's a week to watch one player. And <laughs> a consequence in games user research, it's very common to run many players simultaneously where you'll have 10 or 20 people playing at the same time um, so that you can get them just through that quantity of, of game. So in that week, you'll see 20 people, even if you can't observe them all closely, you at least have 20 people who have played through the game and can start to do those kind of surveys. <clears throat> and because uh, even a simple usability test needs that number of players because of the playtime, you can then do a lot more of these interesting uh, survey questions where you can ask opinions about what do people play, think about the characters, what do people think about the stories, and ask people to give ratings as well. And you, you've got enough people coming through that you can start to quantify this in a way that wouldn't be reliable if you were doing five users for an hour long usability test on a website. Yeah, yeah, because of that variance and in the interpretation of that uh, small sample size. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Um, if you were uh, dealing with a, a team, uh, a product team that was feeling a bit reluctant about putting forward um, a product that they considered not to be uh, ready, which is, mm -hmm. which is often something that comes up, you know, it's not ready yet. What sort of, um, what sort of things would you, would you tell them? to encourage them yeah. to test? Great question. And I also hear that quite a lot where teams think you have to be in a certain state before it's sensible to test things. There's a couple of reasons why this is, isn't a great idea to wait until you think it's ready. Uh, the first one is it's going to be a lot more expensive for you to fix problems later on in development, as we talked about earlier, than uh, if you found there's a problem when you just had the idea or you just made a wireframe, it's reasonably cheap to change a wireframe and it's free to change your ideas. But if you wait until we've built it and it's ready, then it's reasonably expensive to change something in production. There'll be a lot more development time. You'll need to go through a UI artist again or a UX uh, designer will have to go through it again. And that becomes very expensive. And not just in cost, there's also a political momentum here as well. So once you've spent a week or a month developing a feature, people are going to be very reluctant to change that feature. And so they'll just keep on with a, a poor experience because they've spent so long making it than if they'd learned earlier and weren't so invested in the idea because of that sunk cost idea of, oh, I've invested all my time and I have to keep this thing at this point. That really uh, encourages people to, to stick with something, even if it's not perfect. And another reason why this occurs is people perhaps don't understand the ways in which user research work and particularly how we define research objectives. So we can say, okay, we want to learn these things from this study and we could ignore all the bits that aren't finished or aren't representative. We can still find very valuable information about the bits that aren't, are in a good enough state to test. And we can combine it with prototypes or we can mock something up or the researcher can do something to fill the gap for the bits that aren't working so we can work around the fact it's not ready yet and once uh, a team starts to understand oh actually user researcher has skills that allow them to to overcome the bumps in what we've made or overcome bugs we uh, and we'll learn useful things earlier and again it'll save us time and development cost that becomes a very uh, valuable tool for convincing people to run research earlier. Yeah, it almost sounds like uh, as researchers, uh, you need to develop a, a keen um, appreciation for other people's feelings and almost like a, a therapist. Yeah, I think that's very fair. One of, again, as I've become more senior, one of the lessons I've taken is the importance of that cross-disciplinary learning. It's easy enough to sit there as a researcher and think, oh, why is no one doing user research studies and they're not listening to me and my studies have no impact? And it's usually because people have different incentives. If you spoke to people, uh, they have pressures on their, either on their time or they've got deadlines or they've got deliverables that they have to, to meet. And 
as a researcher, you need to understand what are the incentives acting on the people we work with, the product managers and the designers, what are their goals and what are the problems that they have. And then we can come to them with uh, framing our studies in the right way so that if they do care about costs, we can come and frame our research studies about how to reduce costs. If they want development time to be shorter, we can come and say, oh, actually, our studies will reduce your development time. If they just want better customer retention, we can come and say, okay, here's some studies we can run to help customer retention. And by understanding what people are trying to get done in their own job, it allows us to uh, run the right study and ultimately make better things for our users, which is our goal. Mm -hmm. It it almost sounds like that is uh, for a low research maturity organization, for for a lone researcher or a new team, um, sounds like a really great place to start. Mm, I agree with that. I think I recommend starting by interviewing the people that you work with as your first thing as you join as a researcher. So go and find who's making decisions in the company. What are, uh, what are the current decisions they're making and what are the challenges they have? And then once you've done that, you can work out, okay, what's the most impactful study that I can run early on to show the value of this kind of working? Often that can be usability testing because it's easy to understand what's the benefit of a usability test. And we did this test and we, we learned all these problems and so it's something we can fix. And that can be a really great place for a new researcher to start when they're in a new place. So what has been the most fun part of being a user researcher? Yes. So I think it is that direct interaction with participants it's often you can be stuck in in our tech bubble where everyone we work with is very like us and they have the same interests and and the same situation and you forget how different people in the real world are and by having to uh, interact directly with participants you can see how different you are as someone who works in tech from a normal person Um, they that ranges from seeing how kids interact with games, as we talked about earlier. Uh, when we were running studies on SingStar and party games, just that interaction between groups of friends can be tremendously fun to see and be involved with. Or on some of those studies where we're looking at uh, bigger issues like local news or politics, again, seeing the diversity of viewpoints out there, the diversity of behaviours that people have is always surprising and yeah, keeps the job very fresh for me. Yeah, never, never a dull day. Exactly. But I can't imagine, Steve, that it's been all roses. What's been the sort of the least fun or the most challenging part? Yeah, I guess some of the things I've done wrong in the past is not taking that time to understand the other people I work with and what they're trying to get done and just diving in and saying, okay, we're a user research team. We'll go and understand your users and we'll make a nice report and because of the nice report, you'll have learned some things that will be really useful to you. And then what we've got from that is running low impact studies, which teams, they they look at the report and they nod and they think, oh, this is very interesting, very nice, and then go on and do the thing that they're doing anyway. And for researchers, that can be extremely frustrating. But you think, look at all this great work and look at all the inspiration I've found for you and you're just not using it. (laughs) And I've started to recognise that that is... Uh, a failing of the research team to understand what are people trying to get done and how can we frame our research studies so that they're useful to people rather than just doing what we think we should be doing. Yeah, hundred percent. Now, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to play a, a fun little, very simple game with you called complete yes. the sentence. Okay. Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Okay. Product managers are. Uh, time pressured, but lovely people (laughs) (laughs) very safe answer i like it i like it um given all the sessions that you've observed um or conducted and moderated or been involved with what's the funniest thing that you've seen someone do you mentioned Um, the child handing that note over which was pretty up there but has there been anything else i've seen a lot in research sessions i've seen people fall asleep in research (laughs) sessions which you'd be surprised of but often we would have group sessions with like two people playing together and uh we on more than one occasion actually the one of the players has fallen asleep during that session um which isn't a great 
reflection of, of the thing we're working on if someone can't make uh, just fall asleep on our sofa during it. Hopefully the design team wasn't there. Uh, yes, uh, I, perhaps we, we lost the video for that one, maybe. <laughs> Um, yes, it's all been all, all kind of things. We've had colleagues, again, working with kids where the kids are starting to strip off. And again, that's extremely inappropriate and hard to deal with when you're not a parent. Luckily, the parents are usually there in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the children's behaviour has been, has been the strangest thing to deal with. Yeah, we don't have time today, but perhaps a conversation for another day could be, uh, could be ethics. And uh, I, I, I know that um, you've spoken a little bit about that in the past, but it obviously plays a role in research on a, on a more serious side. And in particular, when, you know, when you're dealing with um, different groups like children or um, um, people that are disabled, uh, that plays an important role. Um, yeah, that balance of consent, getting people to understand what they're going to be doing from the research study and being able to meaningfully say, I'm okay with this to happen, is super important for researchers to be aware of and do. Yeah, 100%. So if you were able to go back uh, in time or send yourself a tweet back to your pre-user research days as you were uh, starting your job, the first day at your, at your job as a user researcher, um, that's when Twitter was 140 characters too, so not this long, long-winded Average. Twitter that we have now. What would you, what would you say to yourself in one tweet? What would be the tweet. advice you'd give? Yeah, it's quite hard. Um, I oh, what's that advice? Um, it would have to be something about the community. Let me try and get it into 140 characters. <laughs> but uh, not, I'm I not guess, counting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I guess uh, research, research, the field of research advances through sharing knowledge and building a strong research community. And so the advice would have to be uh, look out for other researchers doing good work, be open about what you're working on and listen and learn from the people around you. Well, you've certainly delivered on that, Steve, through what you've been doing. And um, that brings me to one of the final questions I have for you tonight, which is, what's next? I think we mentioned that you might be working on on something special. Yes. So as we talked about earlier, I've been doing a lot of work for games user research mentoring. And uh, so for the next book that I want to work on, I want to produce a, a book that explains how to be a games user researcher, which answers a lot of those questions that mentees have come to our mentors about it should explain how does games development work? How do you run a study in games user research? And then lots of advice about getting that first job in user research, which can be tremendously difficult to do. Um, so there's a, gonna be a book and also a whole bunch of free community resources because as we've talked about the importance of making resources free to people. Um, the website for this will be gamesuserresearch.com, but there's not much there at the moment, but again, check back soon and there'll, there'll be something there gamesuserresearch.com yes it should uh, the book should be out in early 2021 so worth having a, a look at later oh that's wonderful steve and in the meantime how else can people keep in touch yes so i'm reasonably active on twitter um, as you mentioned earlier my twitter handle is at steve underscore bromley and i think everything i do is uh, referenced on my website, stevebromley.com. I currently am running a, a newsletter for people who are starting new user research teams, keeping up with blog posts about that experience of growing research teams and the work that's going to be happening in games user research. The best place to keep in touch would be, or to follow that would be on the website, stevebromley.com. stevebromley.com, wonderful. Well, Steve, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this, uh, the first show for Brave UX. Thanks for being so generous with your time and sharing your knowledge. It's been such a fabulous conversation and, and I really think that our um, viewers will have a lot of um, insight to unpack here and I really can't wait to read your next book. And I just wanted to bring everyone's attention again to uh, building user research teams. Uh, it's definitely worth its weight in gold um, and there'll be something coming out um, on um, on social soon as to how you might be able to get yourself um, a copy of that uh, from uh, from me. Um, and I just wanted to thank everybody who's tuned in. Um, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the show. And it's um, 
uh, one of the uh, things that we're working on is bringing uh, more uh, world-class experts like Steve to have great conversations like this. So don't forget to comment, like, and subscribe if you found it valuable so you can keep in touch and, uh, and get those uh, direct to, to your feeds. Um, so everything we'll, we've covered today will be available in the show notes, including where to find Steve, as we've just talked about, his books, and all the other resources that we've mentioned. So until next time, stay safe. Cheers, everybody. Yeah.